0: All your noisiness. All right. How did I talk so long on nine slides? That's terrible. Wow. All right. So this um, this image, as we spoke about, has an entropion and an ectropion. And an entropion goes. All right, cool. And right, done. And so the ectropion does the complete opposite. All right, congratulations. So, as you can imagine, the image on your left is going to be extremely uncomfortable because your eyelashes are in your eyes, right? So you have uh, probably hundreds of foreign bodies that are stabbing away at your eyes, right? And if you have very nice, long eyelashes, then you're in even more trouble. It's going to be all up in your forehead, right? Um, the one time we're having terribly short lashes is the benefit of you. So, <laughs> so, obviously very uncomfortable image on the right, if uncomfortable because, hear things and I was like, I'm gonna get my eyes really dry because I wanna hear better. <laughs> okay. It can tear, yeah. Your eyes will tear, they'll get very teary until eventually they're not Becoming weeks, increased laxity in, the, uh, laxity in the skin with age and cause the lids to either fold in or fold out. Okay. So yes, both extremely important to treat. How do you think you would treat this? Cool. What about while they're waiting for surgery? How do you keep the eye closed? So, turning in of the eyelid with entropion, and usually does affect the lower lid, okay? Um, Because gravity, right? The upper lid to fold in, it's gonna take a lot of work. So, it usually affects the lower lid, right? The lower lid folding out or folding in is much more common than the top lid. Um, Congenital or acquired, and most commonly in the elderly population, due to, like we said, increased skin laxity. Um and oh and also yeah, relative and abdominal. So what happens to muscles and fat tissues and things like that for elderly people? Say what? thing that i completely forgot to mention um so symptoms decrease vision i mean yeah you're going to have decreased vision if the eyes get dry your cornea gets irritated if you have eyelashes right in front of your pupil your vision is going to be affected obviously um, but theoretically just the, the the eye folding in or out is not going to cause vision changes it's the damage that can come as a result of prolonged um uh, timing without treatment that can lead to complications that can then affect your vision, right? So if your eyes get really dry, if you have any kind of abrasion from your eyelashes, those type of things can cause vision changes, but normally an entropion or ectropion on their own will not give you vision changes. Uh, Tearing, not hearing, right? So tearing, Uh, mucus discharge, eye discomfort or pain, corneal abrasion or ulcers, right? So if you have very dry eyes, you're much more predisposed to having corneal injuries like abrasions or ulcers. Treatment, artificial tears, uh, and you can do the taping, especially if it's the eye staying open for sleep, you can do the tape. Uh, And then surgical therapy is the definitive treatment, right? So when you get a test question, and uh, it tells you you have an 80-year-old male who presents um, with increased laxity in the left lower eyelid, Uh, the eyelid is oriented outward, the most likely diagnosis is... (laughs) Most psychic diagnosis is <laughs> Actually, okay, cool. and then um, the treatment of choice to correct the patient's uh, disease state would be what I hear. So, I heard tears, and, and then I heard surgery. So, you have to read, the, you had to hear the question right because it says to, uh, tears are not going to correct the patient's condition; they're just going to treat the symptoms, right? So, that's how you get tested. was in the details. Um, what else? Uh, facial palsies. So we did talk about muscular issues and nerve innervation issues. You could have facial palsies that would lead to decreased innervation, which over time can lead to atrophy, which over time can affect the muscles, which could cause inversion or eversion of the eyelid. That's not a common cause of this. The most common cause is age-related, laxity. Um, those are the most common causes, but you could have facial palsies that contribute to it as well um injuries birth defects congenital we did talk a little bit about that um you don't need to i'm not going to test you specifically on all these these little details um but just they're there so you know that they happen there's a lot of different causes that contribute the signs and symptoms we pretty much discussed them it's dry painful tearing redness um and you can get conjunctivitis chronic conjunctivitis right because your eyes are chronically going to be dry and irritated or you can get keratitis, which is inflammation um, around the cornea, right? And infiltration into the cornea. Diagnosis, I mean, right? You don't need much more, right? You just look at it, right? That's it, diagnosis. There's no tests. You don't do any kind of imaging or labs or anything. You just look at it, it's clinically diagnosed. Treatment, artificial tears, and then outpatient surgery. Done. Any questions? I'm going to All right. Awesome. What's this? I heard someone say it's a sty. What's on your right? Somebody just click the next slide and read it. <laughs> so you got you got two things. You got a hordeolum and you got a chalazion, right? And the reason I put these things together on the same slides is because when they're going to ask you a question they're trying to do is trick you into picking one versus the other one. They want to make you pick a chilesian when it's a sty, or they want you to pick a sty when it's a chilesian, right? So they can happen in the upper or lower lids, that doesn't matter. So don't pay attention to that. Um, but very different, what's different about the sty or the coriolum that you don't notice Do I see that professional? It's been there for six months, you know? It's the thing keeps growing. It's there for six months. It's usually described as rubbery um, on the test descriptor, uh, painless, and that's pretty much it. I mean, that's how you're going to differentiate. Right? So if it's red, if it's painful, if there's some kind of purulent secretion, if it's acute, it's probably a sty. And if it's painless and it's rubbery, then it's probably a chalazion, right? So given the fact that a chalazion is chronic, how do we treat it? Warm compresses and limb massage is a very good answer, but actually for chalazion, you can, it just usually doesn't work. Um, but for a hordiolum, absolutely. Uh, worm compresses, don't massage it. Uh, uh, that one you don't want to massage, you just want to do the warm compresses. Um, but since we're on the sty, what else are you gonna do with the sty? It's red, it's warm, it's... Drain it? Don't drain them, let them drain on their own. What else? It's infected. Antibiotics. Yes and no. Uh, styes can predispose you to develop chalazion, but once you develop a chalazion, um, you don't need antibiotics. Antibiotics are not going to fix a chalazion. Usually, they, they stay there. Usually, for a chalazion, if it's there, you don't do anything. You leave it alone. Um, and if it grows big enough that it affects your vision because it pushes your lid in front of your pupil, in front of your cornea, and you can't see. Then you go get surgery and you get it removed. Usually, men um, with a sty, worm compresses, antibiotics, and that's it. Right? Uh, unless they have certain signs and symptoms, which would tell you that it's getting worse, which are cool: proptosis, vision loss, um, or pain with eye movement. All right, so. Hordiolum is an acute bacterial infection, usually caused by what bacteria? Awesome. Um, when in doubt, just staph aureus, right? Um, it's going to affect the, uh, so, there's an, oh, so there's external and internal hordiolum, um, right? So if you can see the pointing on the outside and it looks like that, that's an external. If you flip the patient's eyelid and you see that same head on the inside of the eyelid, that's an internal hordiolum, all right? So external, internal. So uh, painful, redness, swelling, warmth, and a lump. Internal is gonna be the same thing, but it's gonna be on the inside of the eyelid. A diagnosed on clinical exam, you don't need any kind of testing. Of course, if there's purulent secretions and you wanna do a culture, you can, and it's probably gonna tell you that it's staff. Um, so 90% of the time, you wasted a swab. Uh, warm compresses is the mainstay of treatment, and then topical antibiotics, like erythromycin ointment, just like with conjunctivitis, is the antibiotic of choice, all right? Uh, oral or IV, if you have any preoccupation of, or, or if you're worried about orbital cellulitis, which will be manifested by the symptoms we talked about, if they don't improve, then you can drain it, right? And by you, I mean the ophthalmologist that you referred your patient to, because you probably don't want to, you know, if, if the eyes are something you commonly get sued for, you probably want to avoid all kind of liability with the eye. So unless you're very good at draining eye, um, uh, styes and, and eyelid abscesses, then I probably wouldn't do it, right? Um, so if you work in some kind of subspecialty that does this all the time and they train you and you're good at it, awesome. If you work in an urgent care and this is the first one and you're like, all right, let's do it, YOLO. Um, yeah, bad idea, right? So don't, if you're going to drain an abscess for your first time, don't do it on an eyelid. Do it on somebody's like back, right, away from any major arteries. Don't mess around with the eye unless you're very comfortable. Chalazions is usually painless granular and due to meibomian gland obstruction could have started as a hordeolum, didn't get treated, now it's chronically obstructed and the chalazion develops. Yes, absolutely. If it's huge, it's gonna distort your vision. If it's small, it's not gonna bother you at all except for when you look in the mirror, all right? Um, typically, surgical treatment is the only way to go if you do compresses and they don't work, which usually they don't. Uh, and then eyelid hygiene to prevent them from happening again and oftentimes resolves on their own. All right, cool. What are these guys? Is this a question? Yeah. What the- from another area and the bottom lid is extremely easy the top lid takes some work i always i always ask them are you one of those kids in schools you just flip your eyes over like one of those weirdos and they'll be like nope and i'm like all right i gotta do this myself anyway, right? so a lot of times patients can do it on their own and and then that's amazing and if you don't then you can do it and then we might as well talk about that out over here the so, way you do it is um hopefully your patient has long um, hopefully they don't first of all hopefully they don't have fake second of all All right, so what do we got here somebody said something? A pterygium and a pinguecula. Cool. They love asking about these, and every time you read it in the description, it's always confusing because they always sound the same. Uh, the description and the test question is going to be patient presents with a, a fleshy mass on the nasal lacrimal side, and then you're going to be like, all right, well, It can be either one, right? So they have to give you something to differentiate it, right? Nasal lacrimal side? Both of them most common on the late nasal lacunae, so that alone will not differentiate. Although in some places, some people like to say is most common there, and pingueculas not. But they both are most common nasal lacunae. The biggest difference uh, that you guys can see here is why? All right, there we go. It crosses and it goes into the cornea. All right, a pinguecula's got no respect for the cornea. Uh, I'm sorry, a uh, pterygium has no respect for the cornea. The pinguecula respects the cornea, it doesn't cross, it. okay? So if it crosses over the cornea, it is automatically a pterygium, Right. If it does not, then it's probably a pinguecula, okay? So that's number one. Number two, you said the shape. the pterygium how it's right over the pupil if it crosses the corneal margin it's not where it's coming from they both come nasal lacrim, usually it's the fact that it crosses so the pinguecula it stays right over the sclera and the conjunctiva. it does not cross over the cornea the pterygium will cross over the cornea without a uh, without a problem it's not always over the cornea because these things grow gradually so it may start away from it Eventually, it can cross over, right? So, pterygium does not respect the uh, corneal borders. Pinguecula does. Um, you also said the shape. You're absolutely right. So, the pterygium is relatively superficial um, and it's like a sheet, whereas the pinguecula is like a little yellowish nodule. So the teresium is on your right, and the Tenguecula is on your left. I'm sorry. You know what? Somebody gave me that feedback last year, and I said, I'm going to fix that. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Still there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell you the same thing. I'm going to fix that. All right? No, but I really will. I really will. Eurygium's on the right, crosses the corneal surface. Pinguecula's on the left, does not cross the corneal surface. Pinguecula's on the left, it's a rubbery, yellowish nodule, okay? Um, and that's really the only way you can them apart from the test question, usually. Uh, how do you guys think that you would treat this? Surgery, right? Cool, awesome. Do you do surgery on all of them? When would you do surgery? If it affects your vision, cool. So if they have, I've seen a lot of people with these, you don't do anything. They're like, what is this thing, it looks terrible. And I'm like, well, it's not bothering anybody. Um, so we leave it alone. Unless if they want to cosmetically get it taken off, they can, but clinically you only do something about it if it's causing a discomfort. Sometimes these lesions can, uh, it's not common. Usually they don't cause any restriction in movement, but sometimes they can attach themselves to um, certain parts that will restrict eye movement. That's an indication for surgery. Sometimes, and specifically with the pterygium, it can cross over the cornea, it can go over the pupil, it can cause vision changes, you do surgery. If it's not doing any of those things, you do nothing. Okay? Uh, I wouldn't say they're blind, but they're probably seeing very blurry. They're not blind, they can still see the way. It's a a thin piece of, of skin, so they'll still see. But yeah, it's gonna be blurry, definitely blurry vision. Um, so if they have any restricted movement or t- visual changes, you do surgery. Otherwise, you leave them alone, all right? The biggest risk factor for um, pterygium and pinguecula is sun exposure. So usually your patient's a surfer, all right? Why? I don't know, all right? There's not that many surfers, but I guess they get a lot of sun exposure. It could be a taxi driver. They get a lot of sun exposure too, or nowadays an Uber driver, right? So look out for those Uber drivers on your test questions. So pterygium is a fleshy, fibrovascular mass. So even though it's flat, they still call it a mass. So don't clue in on the word mass like I used to and be like, oh, it's a mass, it's a pinguecula. No, they're both technically masses, even though one of them is thin and, and, and um, fibrous, and the other one's raised in yellow. Uh, elevated triangular shaped, so they like using that description with pterygium a lot, triangular shaped, um, growing from the nasal side of the eye. We said both of them can happen on the nasal side of the eye, usually by increased UV exposure, um, and we pretty much talked about everything else. Restricted eye movement's not common, but if it's there, they might need surgery. Treatment, you could do artificial tears um, or steroid eye drops, again, not very common. Usually, supportive care, artificial tears, that's it, if needed, right? Um, and surgery, only if severe symptoms or affected vision, okay? Pinguecula is described, question? I guess, yeah, but I mean, yeah, you could tell them, but I don't know. That seems like a big, uh, wearing sunglasses all the time. It's not a very common, like you'll see um, pterygiums. Uh, Usually they don't cause a lot of issues unless they go over the visual surface. Um, So I guess you could tell them to wear eye protection. If they're in a field that has a lot of sun exposure, absolutely, Um, but you know, some people get them and they don't have a whole lot of sun exposure, so it doesn't make sense. But if they have some kind of occupational risk factor, then yeah, absolutely, Uh, protective eyewear is important. Uh, pinguecula is usually described as raised and yellow um, and it does not tend to grow over the cornea, so that 's very 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 important and very key distinguishing factor between the two so yeah i 'm sorry the i got a, you know what hold on, give me a second this is all right no better time than the present enable editing. oh wait, you know what this isn 't on the drive never mind i 'll do it when I get to my office. <laughs> All right, guys, so what's going on here? That is a dilated pupil. Not what we're looking at, but yes, it's very dilated. What else? Cool. Corneal abrasion or what else? Or an ulcer, right? I mean, we have no idea. I have no idea. Um, there's no way of really knowing unless you got a really good look at what layers of the eye are affected. Okay. So what, what can cause a corneal abrasion or a corneal ulcer? Literally anything, anything that flies into your eye uh, can cause an abrasion or an ulcer. Um, the abrasion or the ulcer can occur in a lot of places on the cornea. Okay, um, it can also occur over the conjunctible surface. We only really care significantly, like like we're very, very worried if this is affecting an area that can eventually affect the patient's vision. So if it's directly in the field of view, we're concerned. If it would be in the field of view with a dilated pupil, we're concerned. Um, really, if it's in the cornea period, we're concerned. But the closer it is to the center of your field of vision, the more concerned we are about the ulcer or the abrasion. Um, but you should be worried anyway. So contacts will concern us for infection with what? Pseudomonas, not staph. Staph is everything else. Yeah, staff is always the right answer, except for right now. <laughs> it is not the same patient, because I got them from, unless I got really lucky and uh, happened to grab (laughs) them, but there were two separate photos. So uh, corneal abrasion, uh, pseudomonas with contact lens use. Things you want to look out for is patients who have a risk for a very uh, severe eye injury, right? Because what we're seeing here is we're seeing an abrasion, but depending, remember the eye has several layers, okay? And as you go closer and closer to those layers, you get closer to actually penetrating through all the layers and having an open globe in which case all the contents from the eye can leak out, in which case the eye can collapse, in which case the patient's vision is done, right? So as you get further down these layers, you get progressively more and more and more concerned. You can start off with a relatively superficial abrasion which can get infected, and then infection can spread to the deeper layers and cause a problem. So you always, always, always take corneal abrasions very seriously, but there's certain things that will make you raise antennas to be very concerned immediately. And that's if the patient has certain occupations like ones that can have high-speed projectiles flying into their eye because sometimes you may see the abrasion, and there may be a foreign body lodged somewhere in there that you can't see, so you need to be very, very worried about that. Um, and also, if the patient has any kind of like cloudiness within the cornea or pus within the cornea. Um, does anybody know the medical term for pus in the cornea? Neither do my supervising physicians at work, right? Um, <laughs> it's called hypopeon, right? What in the world? Um, but yeah, that's the name. It's called hypopeon. Uh, it's extremely uncommon. I've only seen one in three years of practicing medicine. Pus in the anterior chamber of the eye. So if you look in the cornea and you see a bunch of pus behind the cornea, it's called hypopeon. It's a pus collection in the eye. So if they have an infection like an abrasion or an ulcer, it can eventually um, uh, go into the deeper surfaces, cause a hypopeon. And all these things have varying degree of possibility of leaving the patient with permanent deficits in vision. So we take them very seriously. Um, So what's the first thing you do with a patient like this? Physical exam? Cool, visual acuity, right? You do a visual acuity on this patient. After you do that, if it's good or it's not good, you document it. And then what else are you going to want to do with this patient? What's that? Light reflexes, right. You're going to do your whole eye exam, right? And then after you do your whole eye exam, you're going to check very closely for foreign bodies. You're going to see if you see any foreign bodies. If there's any risk, um, you you guys, I talked to you about open globes. So if they have an actual penetrating injury, it goes through all the layers, and their eye is effectively open, all their vitreous contents can leak out. You do not want to manipulate somebody's eye that can have an open globe because it's kind of like a pimple. You have an open pimple and you squeeze it, everything's gonna come out. You have an open eyeball and you squeeze it, everything's gonna come out. So you don't touch somebody who you think has a high risk of an open globe injury. And risk factors would be penetrating injuries. If somebody like, uh, I had a kid the other day who ran into a tree branch directly into his eye and it looked pretty bad. And I said, well, I'm not gonna touch your eye because if you have an open globe, that's a disaster. You can touch the eye in terms of like, I still did the fluorescein staining and I evaluated the eye that way, but I'm not gonna manipulate it. I'm not gonna check for uh, intraocular pressure. I'm not going to put the tonal pen and start tapping on their eye if I think that they might have an open globe. So very important to make sure they don't have any risk factors. And if they don't, you can stain the eye and you can do all these different things. And we'll talk about that in a second. All right. So corneal abrasion, usually caused by uh, some kind of traumatic injury. Um, there's a whole bunch of examples there, but I mean, obviously, anything that you can put in your eye can cause a corneal abrasion. Foreign bodies. Okay, so you wanna be careful with metal form bodies. Metal form bodies can leave rust rings within the um, cornea. And a lot of times they have to go in there with this uh, uh, brush and actually clean out those rust rings, right? We don't do those usually. Ophthalmologists usually do those, but that can happen. So be careful with metal. Um, Contact lenses, most commonly leading to pseudomonal infections. Um, So one of the big symptoms that you're gonna have in these patients is eye pain. Okay, they're going to have very, 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 very painful eyes. They're not going to want to open them. The light is going to bother them like crazy, right? So those are some things. So if you're like, oh well, the eyes red, right? Because they may look like they have a conjunctivitis, but patients with conjunctivitis usually don't have photophobia. Because usually their cornea is completely fine. If the layer in their cornea is affected, they're going to have photophobia. So if they have photophobia, you should turn off your antennas for conjunctivitis and raise them for something involving the cornea, possibly like a foreign body, right? So. Um, Uh, Photophobia is a big one, right? Um, They can have a foreign body sensation regardless of whether or not they have a foreign body. Because you know what? Missing a piece of your eye is gonna feel like a foreign sensation in your eye. So just because they feel like they have a foreign body doesn't necessarily mean that they do. You wanna find out where it is. They might tell you like, I feel like I have something up here. And then you're like, yeah, it's probably not the abrasion. Maybe you got something there. So make sure you do a very thorough exam. evert the lids, look for foreign bodies. They're really hard to find sometimes in the eyes. They can be tiny and a tiny foreign body in the eye feels awful. It can be like a speck of dirt, tiny, 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 and that thing can make you miserable inside your eye. So the level of severity of their discomfort is not indicative at all of the size of the foreign body. Uh, Fundoscopic exam should be attempted, um, although usually in in the outpatient setting, you don't get a whole lot from it. What diagnostic testing to diagnose a corneal abrasion or corneal ulcer is an eye stain, right? So you stain the eye with the dye, and that dye normally does not get absorbed anywhere in the eye. It just goes right off, and when you look at it with the, um, with the wood plant, you don't see anything. You just see a bunch of purple dye all over the patient's face and all around the margins, but in the cornea, it's completely normal. If they have any kind of injury, the dye will get absorbed, and you'll see the injury kind of like what you see on here. So this you see how this is absorbed there? That's how you know that there's either an abrasion or an ulcer there, but normally it'll just look like this. You don't see anything, it's fine. But this will indicate to you, hey, there's something there. And if you see something like that, you tell them to blink and that'll go away. But this will not go away when they blink. It'll stay there. So you can do that even if you suspect a, a globe rupture, it's fine because you're not putting any pressure on the eye, okay? And I'll actually walk you through how to do this quickly, even though you're probably gonna have questions when you go do it for your first time, but I had no idea how to do this when I went to go do it my first time. When you're going to do a stain on a patient's eye, the first thing you do is that you put um, proparacaine. Cool, right? Or there's other drops. But yeah, proparacaine is the one that I use. So proparacaine, you evert the patient's bottom lid and you put one drop of proparacaine. They close their eye, It's going to sting like crazy for about two seconds. And they're going to be like, oh, that's amazing. You fixed me. I have to go home. So the proparacaine itself is a tool that you're using, but it's also a very, very, very important diagnostic tool. Because if you put the drop in there and the patient's pain is gone, it tells you that whatever's bothering them is either on the surface of the eye, on the surface of the eyelids. If the pain is still there, it's probably deeper in the eye, or in the posterior aspect of the eye, and then you need to be worried. So if you put the propyrocane drops and the patient still has eye pain, that's a problem, and you should be worried. If the pain goes away and it's magical, it means that it's something superficial, um, or superficial in terms of on the, the surface of the eye or the the So after you put the proparacin drop in there, the patient's usually, within like seconds, is gonna feel complete relief and they're gonna feel fine. And then there's a little strip um, and I can pull up what it looks like, but if not, I'll be just talking gibberish. And there we go. All right, cool, so these little guys. Right? So you're gonna have some strip like, this. is that big enough that you can see it? Cool. So you're gonna have a strip like this, right? And the dye is right here. And then this is just paper. This is where you've got it from. So you evert the patient's lid. So what I like to do is I like to put two drops. You can get this and you can dab it in their eye. But wherever you touch with that strip is, is gonna be highlighted when you do your, um, your wood lamp exam. So you don't wanna dab it, especially not on the corneal surface. If you're gonna dab it, dab it on the lid and let them close their eye. I try not to dap it at all. I put a drop, either a proparacaine or just saline, right here, and then I let it trickle down, and then I just drop it in like that. Just one or two drops. Drop it into the eye, have the patient close their eye, turn off the lights, and you use a wood lamp, and you look at their eye. And then that's pretty much it. And then you look, if you see this, then that means you have an abrasion. If it looks clear, that means they don't have an abrasion. All right, it's very simple. So if you do this, and the patient has a globe rupture, what do you think you're gonna see? Light up the whole thing, so it's going to show you this, and then out of here you're going to see it all pouring out like a waterfall. And there's actually a sign for that. I think it's called Cidell sign. I don't know if I have that on my PowerPoint or not, but it's a, a, probably not going to be. Yeah, there we go. So Cidell sign is indicative of globe rupture, and it's a waterfall appearance coming from the area of the of the abrasion. So you see anything like that, and there's like a waterfall appearance or whatever the case is, of course. I'm gonna take a picture, but you guys get the idea. So if you see like fluid draining from the area of the abrasion, that's an indication of an, uh, of an open globe, okay? All right, so, where was I? So this is just talking about the exam, you're doing pretty much a full eye exam on these patients. You're checking for pain with eye movement, their visual acuity, um, you're checking for foreign body, you're checking, you're reverting their lids, and looking for foreign body in the lids, um, you're checking for the pupillary response, and then you're doing your fluorescein staining, you're doing a full ophthalmologic exam on them. The treatment uh, for these patients is antibiotics. They have a superficial abrasion, it's topical antibiotics and follow up with ophthalmology, and that's it. If they have a foreign body, the treatment is removing the foreign body and then treating them with antibiotics. Um, you, can tr- you can remove the foreign body by flushing the eye with uh, saline, right, or an okay. eye wash solution but usually that's tough because you, ju- you just found this tiny little speck in their eye and then, you, and then you're just gonna spray it and then you're gonna knock that thing around. You're gonna have no idea if it got out and the patient is on proparacaine, so they feel fine. So they're like, I think it's out. And you're like, are you sure? And they're like, I don't know, I don't feel anything. after you put the drop and you're like, all right, well, let me know in six hours if it's still there, come right on back, you know? So what I like to do is I get a Q-tip and you wet the Q-tip with normal saline, you find the foreign body and then you just tap it usually it sticks on the Q-tip, and if it doesn't, then you gently keep trying, and usually it just comes right off, and it sticks to your Q-tip. The Q-tip's nice and white, so whatever was in there, you show it to them, you like, look, I did it. it saved your life, <laughs> I got it out. Yeah, and they love you, because it's very uncomfortable. So the happiest patients that have ever been happy with me is from removing the foreign body from their eye, which is the easiest thing you can possibly do. So um, if it's on the corneal surface, you have to be careful, because you don't want to Put too much pressure or injury on it, but the eye is more sturdy than you think. I mean, my first time removing one from the corneal surface, I was like, I "Doc, I can't get it out. I don't know what's going on." I, I tried; it's there. I'm, I'm going. It was a piece of glass, and the doc comes in here and he's like, um, "I don't know why you guys speak, but my, a lot of my supervising physicians are Cuban," and he's like, "Oye, macho, And he grabs the thing and he goes in the guy's eye and he goes, bam, And he just scoops it out, and I'm like, "I would have never put that much pressure, but the eyes are pretty sturdy, more sturdy than you think." So, but always start lightly because a lot of times you can get them out very gently. If not, you can apply more forces. And, um, you don't need to do eye patch um, for, for these patients, although some kind of eye protection, if they wear sunglasses or whatever the case is, will make the patient more comfortable for the, um, from the photophobia. If it's caused by a bacteria like Pseudomonas from a patient with contact lens and you use the fluoroquinolone eye drop, which was, what, what did we say it was? What drop? Oflaxacin. There's other ones, topromycin, whatever the case is. Ciprofloxacin drops. Um, yeah. Always be careful. You can, you can prescribe patients eye drops for their ears. You can never prescribe them ear drops for their eyes. Um, a good rule of thumb is to prescribe eye drops for the eyes and ear drops for the ears. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like to do. But sometimes, no, but seriously, sometimes, I, I'm not even kidding you, Like the drops are cheaper for the eyes. So patients will be like, yo, give me the eye drops. I know it's for the ears but never do eardrops for the eyes, okay? Um, that has happened before, not to me, thankfully, that's one mistake I haven't made, um, but it happens. And when the patients put the eardrops in the eyes, you're gonna know, because they're gonna call you and they're gonna be like, it burns, and you're gonna be like, 15 minutes, atomic irrigation, now please, <laughs> come right back in, right? So never eardrop for the eyes. Um, and a good rule of thumb, just stick to where it belongs, right? Um, and the medications are, sound exactly the same. Like they have ofloxacin for the eyes and for the ears. They have ciprofloxacin for the eyes and for the ears. Um, so the good thing about erythromycin ointment is that they don't have it for the ears. It's not really something you use in the ear. So when you prescribe it, you know you're doing it for the eye. So that helps. Uh, corneal ulceration. So the difference between the abrasion and the ulcer is just what layer it's affecting. Okay. A corneal abrasion goes only to, up to the Bowman's layer, but does not penetrate it. If the stroma is affected, it's now a corneal ulcer, right? That's the big difference, is how many layers were affected. So that's an important test question that people like to ask you. So you may get a question that tells you what layer is affected, and they'll ask what the diagnosis is, and it'll give you the whole clinical vignette, and it sounds like an abrasion, but then it tells you that the stroma is affected, and you're gonna be like, nope, not an abrasion, it's an ulcer, and you're good to go, right? Clinically speaking, they present very similarly, and the only way you're gonna know is if you know what layer is talking. okay? Look at that, we're done. Nice, do you guys have any questions? I heard yeah, but I don't think that was you had any questions. <laughs> so if the stroma is affected, it's an order. If it's superficial to that, Yeah.